Welcome to Common Ground, which encourages debate and a deeper understanding of important topics in our lives. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Today's episode is our second special collaboration with the Goethe Institute and its series called The Big Ponder. So kick back and enjoy this piece by Common Ground senior producer Dina El Sayed. What's in a name? Or to be more precise, in a street name? We use them every day on applications, invitations, or other correspondence. We share them with family and friends, with officials, with taxi drivers. But street names are more than a simple address. They tell us stories about people, places, and time. They can inspire or sadden or sometimes anger. It's triggering in a very good way. And that was amazing for me. I was like, oh, wow, you know, and I could connect. So it's a little jarring then, I think, to see it in Berlin and to think that it's being celebrated is also honestly irritating. Their responses are to street names in my city, which was once divided and struggling with its identity. While the wall in Berlin is long gone, street names still denote the demarcation. You can often tell whether you are in the former East or West by looking at the width of the letters on the signs. Even the punctuation here is by design. So in Berlin there are strict rules and one of the rules says that if the place is named after a person, if it's a surname, then you write uh, the name of the street with the co-joined Straße or Platz as one word. That's Berlin author, blogger and wanderer Beata Kontratsche-Krampe. So, for example, Schleiermacherstraße is spelled as one word. And then you look at Senefelder Platz and you see it's like one word, but there's also a place called Senefeld. This is how you actually recognize. Um, so you know that Senefelder Platz was named after Alois Senefeld because it's spelled as one word. If you go to Feuerbachstraße, then you also see whether it's a place called Feuerbach or whether it's a person. It's a person because it's spelled as one word. Kontatsche Krampe, who hails from Poland, says her obsession with street names in the German capital began 14 years ago, after the birth of her eldest son. Which means that you go for long walks during the day, pushing the pram. And that's exactly what I did. And then when you have time and you have to sort of spend time uh, moving around, you start noticing things that you would probably normally not pay attention to because you wouldn't be in a hurry. So I wasn't in a hurry. And um, I started paying attention to things like, for example, gaps in the street. Um, Like there's a building missing. So why is the building missing? And I paid attention to the street names as well. Her blog, Kreuzbergt, Berlin Companion, unlocks the secrets of those signs and more. I had two more children, twins in the meantime, so there was even more pram pushing. Yeah, and I discovered um, wonderful things about Berlin, and uh, it's a permanent rabbit hole for me. For her, the street names in her former neighborhood of Kreuzberg serve as a bridge to the past. The area around the Victoria Park um, the streets were, have something to do with the wars of liberation, so wars against Napoleon, a big, big thing in Prussian history. And um, um, so you have those streets like Großbeerenstraße, um, Katzbachstraße, and so on and so on. And um, Meringdam used to be called Bellalionstraße, which I 
think is the most beautiful name. <laughs> I have a particular sort of fondness for the Belle Alliance Straße. Belle Alliance, or the Beautiful Alliance, is how the Prussians came to describe the Battle of Waterloo, which saw the final defeat of Napoleon in 1815. Some Berlin streets harken back to European composers, like the Komponistenviertel in the Berlin suburb of Weisensee, where Chopinstrasse, Puccinistrasse and Mahlerstrasse intersect. Other streets have a more fruity significance, like in the district of Marzahn before it joined Berlin a century ago. Marzahn was a village. And the village was almost completely depopulated after the Thirty Years' War. So people were invited to come. There were Huguenots coming from France, for example. And in this case, they came from Kurpfalz. And uh, they were gardeners and uh, they set up flourishing gardens and they introduced a lot of new apple sorts because they brought the seeds with them. So in order to honor those people, uh, when the new Siedlung, where this residential estate high rises were built, they named the streets after the uh, names of the apple. There are also many streets in Berlin that highlight the city's strong transatlantic link, like Frank Zappa Straße, named for the American rocker, or Jesse Owens Allee, named for the American gold medalist who is credited with crushing Adolf Hitler's claims of Aryan supremacy. One short street in Berlin reaches as far as Brazil. Located in the neighborhood of Prenzlauer Berg, it's only 180 meters or 590 feet long and was named for Olga Benario Prestes a half century ago. The Munich-born Nazi resistance fighter fell in love with Brazilian communist leader Luis Carlos Prestes and moved with him to Brazil in 1934. When an attempted coup a year later, led by her lover, failed, she was deported back to Nazi Germany. Prestes was eventually murdered in a Nazi gas chamber. Many Germans may not have heard about Prestes, but she is famous in Brazil. Thais Nepomuceno is a Brazilian filmmaker from Rio de Janeiro. She lives in Berlin. Olga was one of these women that always appeared in our you know, lectures, telling oh how she fight against dictators, governments, uh, how she was important for our society, um, to fight against authoritarian uh, governments. So when I was a child, she was this image of this fighter. I first learned about Prestes when Nepomuceno came to visit me. She had trouble finding my apartment, which led to a surprising find. I was walking towards your house um, the streets are all the same, and the builders looks like the same. And I look like, I think this is the building. And then you told me the number, and I was it the number. It was like, but doesn't look like, you know, because the door was not like this. And I was like, because when I get uh, lost, like going somewhere, I get very distressed. And I was like, ah. She went to look for the street name and saw it was Prestes' name. Nepomucina's jaw dropped. Wow, that's a street for her here. And then my distress went away because I was amazed that like at the same time I was like, oh, I'm lost. I found her street. I feel relieved because, oh, finally, 
You know, I'm seeing something from her and also something that I can connect and I know who is this person. And probably people that live in the street doesn't know her. It's just the name of the street for them. But like for me, oh, I know her story. I know her. And then it was like, okay, that's cool. And I felt like, okay, now it's I'm fine. <laughs> Brazilian artist Tatiana Haider is another Prestes fan who is happy to find a Berlin street named for her German-born heroine. I meet Haider across town in the Neukölln district. So we are in this vegan cafe just beside the house that Olga Benaru lived with Otto Braun in her first moment uh, when she arrived in Berlin in the neighborhood that at the time was called the Red Fort, which was the communist neighborhood, the workers' neighborhood. Haida says Prestes' story gave her a sense of belonging from the moment she moved here from Sao Paulo more than seven years ago. I was uh, two weeks in Germany walking, just pushing the stroller in the streets with a baby and like dealing with my new life. And I saw a poster of this doku theater play. There was this uh, call for people to take part in a theater project. Haida hit it off with the director and they brainstormed on what her role in the play would be. She realized that Olga, who has lived in Brazil, would be our link and that I could tell the story of Olga inside the play to the Germans, not playing Olga, but telling her story and bringing her up in the play. The performance took place in a small theater called Heimathafen, a few blocks from where Prestes once lived. The play told the stories of Jewish families who lived there. Their furniture was stowed in the theater after the Nazis moved them to concentration camps. Haida says she identifies closely with Prestes. I was the same age as Olga was at the time when she was uh, imprisoned. She had a baby like I did, so it was a very strong bond to this character that actually was in the book and in the story, but I felt her very alive and I felt it was like, okay, so that's why I'm here, <laughs> let's tell her story. And I really got that as my mission. I, for me, it still is. I really feel connected to her. And it's part of my biography here. It's to bring her story up. Yeah. But the fact few Germans appear to know who Prestes is surprised Haida. So when I was sharing uh, her story on stage, and I started asking, have you ever heard of Olga Benario? was really impressing because like I would say 10% of the audience would raise their hands. Nepo Museno agrees that Prestes is far better known in Brazil. There are multiple films and telenovelas about her there. Many of the scenes have become memes used in Brazilian chat groups. It was so um, interesting because back in time, uh, before Facebook, uh, we have this a meme of her, it's like, I'm pregnant of uh, Luis Carlos Prestes and I want to have my baby in Brazil. So it's, it's a scene in the film that she comes to the journalist press and she say out loud, I'm pregnant and I want to have my baby here. So um, we started to reproduce this image, like I'm pregnant, I want to have my baby here, but not like mocking her, but more like it's this powerful things, like speaking out loud, like, hey, I want to do this. And she spoke out, she was very verbal.
Back in Berlin, there's a leafy residential street in Pankow, named for a bass baritone who was born in New Jersey in 1898. His name is Paul Robeson, and he was a black entertainer, singer, activist, and polymath embraced by the communist German Democratic Republic. He had studied mathematics, he had studied at Rutgers University, Columbia, also played football. He was really this figure, this, such a dynamic figure, who was such a vibrant and larger-than-life personality. Kira Thurman is an assistant professor of history and German studies at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Her first book is on the history of black musicians in Germany and Austria in the 19th and 20th centuries. I visit her in Munich to learn why Robeson made it big in the former East Germany where xenophobia abounded, in part because racism there was never officially acknowledged and addressed. One of the reasons why Paul Robeson became so well-known was for singing uh, pieces like um, Old Man River from the musical Showboat. It was, I think, really his most famous song, the song that he was the most known for, that he kept getting requested to sing. But... Paul Robeson was also famous for being a committed Marxist and committed socialist. And that really stemmed from his upbringing and his identity as a black man in America. He came to believe pretty firmly by the 1920s, 1930s in socialism and in Marxism as a means of black liberation and black civil rights um, in the United States. So that's really the context that I think is most important for people to understand when thinking about who Paul Robeson was and what his international legacy was. Robeson's music was popular in the former GDR, as were his politics. The thing is, Robeson never lived in the GDR. He only visited East Germany twice, in 1960 when he received an honorary doctorate from Humboldt University, and again in 1963 to receive medical treatment. The irony here is that Paul Robeson and Eslanda Robeson had been to Germany before, but they had arrived in Germany in 1934 after Hitler had come to power and had been such a terrible experience for them that they stayed less than 24 hours in Berlin before fleeing to Moscow. So Paul Robeson was familiar with German-speaking Europe and with Germany in particular. And then after World War II, he had made some connections to communist circles in Eastern Europe. And really, it's through these connections, through um, different figures um, like in the culture ministry, in the GDR, and the like, that he received this invitation to come to the GDR, where I should say he received an honorary degree and a peace medal as well for uh, his contributions to international human rights from their perspective. There is more to Robeson's complex legacy than his socialism, however. I think that Paul Robeson lives on in a lot of African-American activism today as well, that eventually, as people do their history and do their digging, they do come across Paul Robeson as one of these important figures who was willing to speak the truth about American racism and about the problems that Black people faced um, in such a vital and critical way. Thurman says many Americans, especially white ones, can't get past their discomfort with his embracing Marxism and socialism. Nonetheless, he believed throughout his lifetime, really, that the solutions to the problems of institutional racism in the United States depended on creating a more equal society 
and that he thought that was possible by embracing socialism, basically. Now I think his legacy is really dominated by his politics, his turn to the left. And so he lent his voice, as it were, so both literally and figuratively, to the socialist internationalist cause. Todd Carmody is a cultural and literary historian who first heard about Robeson during a visit to Berlin 22 years ago. I reached him in New York. His records sold incredibly well, I understand, in East Germany. There was a lot of disinfatuation with the music. And there's a lot of overlap between sort of the socialist propagandizing of his career, but also just people loved his music. And so I think somewhere in between there is how we understand sort of this legacy in East Germany, that folks really liked what he was doing, his recordings, and then they were being encouraged to like his performances and his politics by the state. Sound experimentalist and jazz saxophonist Matana Roberts sees Robeson not just as an artist with a stronghold overseas, but as an outspoken fighter for racial equality. I reached them in Chicago. It was interesting to be reminded of the history of that power. Like, I look at Paul Robeson as a giant. Like, he was and will forever remain a giant. I don't care how many different ways people try to take down his contributions uh, based on, you know, some political decisions that he made without having all the full information. And yet people try to use that against him still to this day. Robert says they see themselves in Robeson. Being the son of an escaped slave um, who dared to still speak up for injustices, I recognize, oh yeah, I come from exactly similar stock where I was taught not to be quiet. And it's gotten me in trouble. It continues to get me in trouble. I do not feel that I have yet been able to do it at the level of the Robesons, but I look to them as a standard. I often say that I stand on the backs of many people who never got a chance to express themselves. And I'm pretty certain uh, that the Robesons felt similar at a different time. He became a force in Robert's life when they were still young. One of the pieces I used to focus on uh, as an alto saxophonist was Motherless Child, the spiritual that Paul Robeson was also quite known for. Um, but I also grew up in a household uh, with extended family. My grandmother had season tickets to the Chicago Lyric Opera. And at the time, as a child, I had a very hard time with it. Um, going to the opera, the, um, it was very difficult for me. But it also set the pace of understanding different art forms. And as I continue to study music, I have a background in classical music and also jazz, but my, my um, formal training was in classical music. You cannot not come across Paul Robeson. Robeson was inducted into the East Germany Academy of Arts as an affiliate member in 1960. Five years later, East Berlin's Academy of the Arts established the Paul Robeson Archive in his honor. Carmody points out it isn't your typical archive. Well, the archive in East Berlin tried to get as much material as they could, and they did get some very valuable original materials. They were also really worried about um, Paul Robeson's legacy. 
and about material being destroyed in the United States that they couldn't get their hands on. And I think the, it's hard for us to imagine, but these were really legitimate concerns given just how he was under surveillance by the FBI, the CIA had taken away his passport. And so the archive is also filled with lots of photocopies of materials held elsewhere. And so there's a real kind of effort to just make sure to safeguard, to get everything. And so in my own work, I've theorized that as kind of being an archive of absence. In the same way that Robeson was kind of an absent figure in East German popular culture, that they kind of wanted him to come visit, he couldn't come visit. And he was known for his telephone recordings, uh, telephone concerts, all of this sort of disembodied presence that he had. I think you see a resonance with that in the archive itself. Decades later, Robeson's legacy in Germany and the United States is still a difficult one because of his connection to the communist East. Thurman explains our awareness of him is muted as a result. I find it really interesting that for all of the celebrations in 1960 for Paul Robeson, that we nonetheless today don't really remember him as much, that yes, there's a street, Paul Robesenstrasse, um, but that somehow people walking by it don't know who he is. I wonder if a part of that has to do with, of course, the nature of the Venda of 1989 through 1991, that period of transition of creating a federal Republic of Germany, and how much whatever was East German and whatever got celebrated as East German got erased to a certain extent. So it's really interesting to me that he is one of the only Black figures that has an archive collection named after him in Germany. He's one of the only figures that has a street named after him. But nonetheless, today, we don't really know or understand what he did and who he was. Roberts, however, sees signs of him everywhere, that one just needs to look deeper. It's an amazing experience to walk through certain parts of Berlin and seeing Black Lives Matter signs. That has been a moment for me where I'm like, yes, this is part of the legacy of the Robesons, in a sense, of making sure that we understand our global connections. And I see through the Black Lives Matter movement in the U.S., an understanding of that as well, like the old saying, um, we can't all be free if some of us are not free. You know, and I've been to that Paul Robeson Street in Berlin and also just been like, oh, wow, right. I still don't feel that they're being remembered fully as they should in either place. And I hope to add to changing that a bit. Not all Berlin street names are embraced, however. Like this Berlin subway stop, which at first glance appears linked to the controversial novel by Harriet Beecher Stowe. The stop is called Uncle Tom's Hütte, or Hut. It is located on Uncle Tom Street, which was named in 1933. There, you will also find Uncle Tom's Burgers and the Uncle Tom's Hütte daycare center. I think there's actually a pretty good bakery there, <laughs> is what I would say. But Thurman quickly turns serious. Yeah, it feels so archaic to a certain extent, and definitely outdated. You know, and the context behind it is that Uncle Tom's Hütte, or Uncle Tom's Cabin, was a popular 
abolitionist novel in the 1850s. And I believe in 1852, it was the number one international bestseller in Germany as well, that people would stage plays of Uncle Tom's Hütte in Germany. But even though the novel was really popular, it still was really problematic in its portrayal of Black people. Um, and that basically the critique over time has been that not only are the Black characters in it overly simplified, uh, but even worse, they're willing to sacrifice themselves like Uncle Tom for the sake of their white slave masters. Thurman says that lesson seems to be lost on Berlin. So it's a little jarring then, I think, to see it in Berlin and to think that it's being celebrated is also honestly irritating. But Kontacha Krampus's anger over that street name may be misplaced. Uncle Tom Suter actually has very little to do with the book as such, at least as far as I know, because you can always have different opinions. There would be people who would find a, a closer link between the two. But Uncle Tom Suter, it's actually a Siedlung, which is like a residential estate in Zellendorf. And um, there used to be uh, indeed a place. It was uh, not so much an Eckkneiper as a kind of an inn. And it was opened on the edge of the Grunewald, of the forest. And it was a place which uh, was basically established for people going horse riding. And the owner of this place was called Thomas. And Herr Thomas, uh, he built um, kind of um, huts so that his guests could be uh, sort of sheltered from the rain and to make the place a little cozier, so to say. And the place was not called Uncle Tom's Hutter. He didn't call it that. Those were his guests who gave the place that name. She says she did read that he was a big fan of the book, but adds that even if the street and subway station are named after him and not the book, it doesn't mean they shouldn't be changed. I read an article in Die Zeit and one point I was not aware of was that how offensive really the name is to some people of color and at the same time how strong the argument of the other side is that this was not meant as an offensive name. I think the first time that this term was used officially as an offensive term was uh, when Malcolm X referred to Martin Luther King. When I asked the professor, Kira Thurman, who she would like to see a street named after, she mentions Bayumi Muhammad Hussein. You haven't heard of him? Here's a clue. In the center of Berlin, there's a Stolperstein, or stumbling stone, engraved with his name. There are more than 75,000 of the brass-plated squares across Germany. They are embedded in sidewalks and streets to memorialize victims of the Nazis. Thurman says he is one of only three black people with a Stolperstein. So Mohammed Hussein was an Afro-German entertainer and figure who had fought during World War I on behalf of the German Empire. His family came originally from German East Africa, and then he had settled in Berlin in the 1920s and 1930s. With the rise of the Nazis in 1933, he, like so many other Afro-Germans, struggled to find work, struggled to find ways to live and be safe and protected. So he took on all kinds of odd jobs, including performing in the Deutsche Afrika Show in 1936, the German Afrika Show, which really sort of, in its terrible, kind of exotic, racist way, put Africans on display for white Germans to look at. Following this, 
even following all of his petitions to the German colonial office for help, he was sent to a concentration camp, um, to Sachsenhausen in particular, where he died. He, I think, is an example of somebody who lived his life in Germany, fought hard for freedom and to be recognized as German, um, and was persecuted for it. So I think there's this longer history of Black Germans in general that we should be aware of and that I think could be made visible on the streets in Berlin. Naming or renaming streets here turns out to be a fairly straightforward process, despite Berlin's intractable bureaucracy, Gontatsche Krampus says. So the boroughs can decide which names they want to um, see you know, on the street signs. And the initiative comes from the people. Anyone can start a, a petition. That sounds good in theory, but in practice, it's harder. Case in point, an online petition running for more than two years and signed by nearly 15,000 people demanding Uncle Tom's Hutter Street and Subway Station be renamed. There are still no plans to do so. It took years of protest by anti-colonial campaigners for Berlin to agree to change the name of Morenstrasse, or Moore Street. It will be renamed Anton Wilhelm Amo, after Germany's first black philosopher. That was Common Ground senior producer Dina El-Sayed with Street Names, an episode in the Goethe Institute's Big Ponder series. Frederick Chopin's Prelude Opus 28 No. 9 was performed by Paul Cantrell. Also featured are Brazil by Sergei Quadrado, Woke Up This Morning by Till Paradiso, and All Is Written by Matana Roberts from their album Coin Coin Chapter 3. And from Blue Dot Studios, we heard Nine Count, Minister Creek, Vulcan Street, and Ervira. Common Ground is made possible through a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Energy. Thank you to our partners, the Goethe Institute and the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Our newest partner is Berlin Briefing, the German capital's English-language news podcast, brought to you every weekday. All Common Ground episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out our website, commongroundberlin.com. 